All right. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. It is such a delight to be here. It's such a delight to publicly hug one of the men I love very much. I love Paul so much, and uh, they have made a huge impact on us uh, by their example, by their impact on you. We rejoice to be here with you all this morning. Uh, Linda and I, just it's such a delight to be here. Uh, and I think of, of all the things... Uh, about what's going on here, and I just rejoice. I rejoice at the love that you have in your community. I rejoice in the reputation that you're building. I rejoice in the joy that you have. Uh, just, you know, we're trying to talk to people, uh, get to get reconnected with people, but I can hear the buzz and the conversations and the joy that's happening as you gather together, and that is so exciting to me. Your love for Christ, and uh, that that is trumpeting out, and we are incredibly grateful. You have have taken a risk in the last year to plant a church, uh, to uh, hope to find a building, and to, you know, be on the wagon train from one building to another building. I mean, it's all the risks of, of planting a church, uh, and then all the new things that come along with planting a church. We are so grateful. Faith Bible Church sends its greetings to you, and so... Uh, Nathan Theory is in the pulpit this morning um, at Faith Bible Church, but Faith Bible Church sends greetings to you, and we are so glad um, to be here this morning. Uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, it, was, it was a joy to me to think about you memorizing uh, a significant chunk of Ephesians. When I first stepped into the pulpit, the first book that I went through 18 years ago was the book of Ephesians, and I think it's 18 years ago this summer we encouraged the church to memorize Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. So I, I just, that occurred to me as I was thinking of it here, and I've remembered most of it. You know how memory goes, you have to keep refreshing it. So it's, it's a joy. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 4 after all of these incredible truths that the apostle is giving. After all these truths, he tells them now things to start doing with those realities. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have loved us in such a, a grand and great way. Lord Jesus, uh, your humble love, your your coming to earth humbles us. We, we realize how small we were. And yet you have shown intimate and caring love. And God, our Holy Spirit, thank you for awakening us to these truths. Awaken them this morning. I pray for Trinity Church, just as I pray for Faith Bible Church, that we would take these truths, plant them in our hearts, and that you, by your Spirit, would work in them in such a way that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
that we would be on guard for fractiousness and factiousness, that we would be on guard against sin and assorted uh, temptations that would threaten to divide and instead help us be hardworking and diligent to keep this great unity that you have made. Pray that you would help me as I speak, help me speak what is helpful for Trinity Church, what will help them as they continue to trumpet the gospel by life, by word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So does anybody need to be convinced that ice cream is delicious? Very, very rarely does anybody need to be convinced. Tourist towns all have ice cream shops, um, and there's nobody outside them trying to tell you to come in, you know, come in, ice cream's great, let's convince you that nobody does that. People just line up for ice cream. I mean, even people who have dairy allergies scour the shelves for ice cream-like substances. Ice cream needs no defense. Did you know that Christianity that is demonstrated in peace and harmony especially in the gathering and the ongoing life of a local church, needs no defense either. A couple that lives in biblical harmony, in biblical peace, a couple that's growing in unity, a church that's growing in unity, is, gives the most compelling witness to the work of Christ. It's the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 21 through 22. He prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of a local church, the relationships that seek to quickly resolve conflict, that pursue peace, that are filled with peacemakers, not peace breakers, that kind of church is the answer to Jesus' prayer, and it is a compelling testimony to the world. And like a symphony like a symphony with its array of instruments all playing their parts under the one conductor, Jesus Christ, a church that works in harmony makes a beautiful sound to the world. It is a fragrant aroma. So in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Now you have been memorizing the calling. Think about Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the most diverse cities, therefore had one of the most diverse churches you could imagine. Jews and Gentiles together. That's what the book talks about. But a little history, there were magicians who had their magic books and there were Levites who had their holy books. Some were saved out of both and now they're in one group. There were thieves and laborers, lawbreakers and law enforcement, virgins and fornicators had all been saved, and now we're seeing the one true hope in Jesus Christ. It is as if God had shuttered all the false hopes and all the false things and had opened the window to see the glory of Christ, and all these kind of different people came together under one head, Jesus Christ. They were an entirely new people. 
Now you just think of all those different kinds of people and you would imagine a recipe for division in the church. All those different cultural backgrounds, all those different um, socioeconomic backgrounds. And here we have an entirely new people. So in chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, considering himself a, a prisoner of the Lord, that is a joyful but real captive of Christ. He's really in jail. And he's a captive, not of Rome, but of Christ, serving Christ's mission. The calling is astounding. I mean, Ephesus, God had called, God had called a people to himself. In chapter 1, don't you see the, the monumental, the heavenly blessings that have been poured out on the people of God? They had been called to a new hope. They had been called to treasure one another. And they had been, been called to see and experience the power of God who raised Christ from the dead and to see that work out in their lives. The first three chapters is, is often well known about the book of Ephesus, talks about realities, spiritual realities. You've memorized spiritual blessings, but those go on in chapter two to talk about those who were once dead, now been given life and given a new life in Christ. Those who were divided, Jew and Gentile, now had been brought together as one new people under God. Those who have heard the gospel now have the riches of Christ. And Paul had prayed for them to see the phenomenal and, and mind-blowing, incomprehensible love of God through Christ. After all those realities, he says this, I urge you, therefore, to walk in a manner worthy. I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And the first order of business in a worthy walk is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. They were to be earnest about this. To walk worthy, to walk worthy is to live in a way that demonstrates those realities that God has given. To walk worthy is to, to act or live day by day in a way that reflects the high calling or the high standard we have as sons and daughters of God. It's to live as we are, walk worthy. And the first thing he exhorts them to is unity. Sinful conflicts plague the church. It's plagued Christians and non-Christians alike. Churches split, roommates gossip and slander each other, husbands and wives bicker and quarrel. Siblings wear their parents out. Do they not? Do brothers and sisters wear their parents out with their fighting and their quarreling? There are some who have been married decades, maybe even here in this room, who are more known for their biting and bickering than they are for their tenderness and sweetness. Too often, divisiveness is a problem in the Christian home, in the Christian family, 
and the Christian church. In fact, almost all of the letters written in the New Testament are to address some form of conflict and division. The Apostle Paul then wants the believers here who have such a high calling to be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So this morning I want to give you five prerequisites. You're a new church. You're enjoying all those things of newness. We're about to celebrate our 30th anniversary at Faith Bible Church and I was there at the beginning when we met at Franklin Park for this first gathering to see if a church was even possible and when we all show up and there are hundreds of people there there is this excitement there's this wonder wow look at this this is amazing starting something new we get to forge it new together and there was just an un- unbelievable unity for those first forged years all together we were going from school to school we were setting up and tearing down classrooms and all the things that it takes to make a church all of that was happening and we experienced such unity How do you preserve the unity of the Spirit? Well, Paul gives us five prerequisites to do that. How do, we, how do we preserve that unity? How do we overcome conflict? How do we be peacemakers instead of peace breakers? These virtues stand out as those kinds of things that would radically continue the transformation process and unity building process of Trinity Church. All right, number one, humility. Prerequisites for preserving unity and peacemaking. The first is humility. The Apostle Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. That is with the utmost, the highest degree of it. I mean, all humility. Humility alone would just be good. With humility. No, with all humility. So this is, this is very important to the Apostle Paul with the highest degree of humility, which is an interesting thing to say about humility because you know what humility is, lowness of mind. So with the highest degree of the lowest of mind, pursue this. So if pride is the root of all sin, humility is going to be the root of all virtue. Pride is so divisive. Proverbs 13.10 says, By insolence comes nothing but strife, which is disrespectful, proud attitudes. Humility, this particular word for humility, is lowness of mind. Humility toward God is seeing how great and how holy God is and how sinful and weak we are apart from Christ. It's that perpetual attitude. I think one of the eventual dangers that Faith Bible Church uh, encountered is in forging a new church, we started to think we were better than others and we would talk about it. We're better than this, we're better than that. And eventually, that pride in comparison, because we do these things and those other people do those other things that uh, are less biblical than what we do, eventually you start believing your own press, thinking that you're pretty great and you're superior. How do you prevent that? Always remembering how holy God is, how weak you are, how incomplete you are, how unfinished you are in the, in the 
both in the eyes of God until glory, but it's resisting comparisons. Resisting comparisons. Humility is lowliness of mind. Humility toward God is seeing, seeing that greatness of him. It's acknowledging that the circumstances, the gifts, the talents, whatever you've learned from the Bible, whatever you've come to understand is a gift from God, not an earned thing from God. It's a gift from God if you know or experience anything that's true. It's because God has been gracious to reveal something to you. It is lowliness of mind toward God and toward others. Let's put it a little more practically. If you're working through a, a conflict with somebody, you're having a difficult conversation, as my friends the Hennings like to write about. Humility always starts with you going to God saying, show me my sin. Humility always starts with saying, show me my sin. The most, uh, most appropriate place to to be going for our humility or seeing our humility is in the residing sin that's still in us. And so if there's a conflict, you pray, show me my sin. God shows you your sin. You confess that. Confession of sin to God is one of the most appropriate and uh, first manifestations of humility. If that sin was expressed toward another person, go to that person, confess to them too. Humility always starts with seeing one's own sin. Remember James 4 is this classic passage about what's the source of arguing and quarreling. James does give the solution to a couple or a people or a faction who are arguing and quarreling. He says, God gives more grace because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves into the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. Since pride is selfish and self-exalting, humility is seeking others' welfare. So what does humility look like? We all know what pride looks like because we all feel it in, in so many of the things we do. What does humility look like? Humility is seeking others' welfare, not just your own. God himself is the most humble person in existence. I mean, the one who deserves the most worship is the most humble person in existence. How do we know that? Because God, in the person of Jesus Christ, condescended to join sinful humanity. And in another conflict-resolving, unity-building passage in Philippians chapter 2, The apostle says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's Philippians 2, 4. And then in 5, he describes Jesus, who did not not think of equality with God as a thing to clutch, but instead emptied himself, or he divested himself of all the rights and privileges that he otherwise could have held. He became a man, not just became a man, he became a servant. Not just a servant, but he became... The sacrifice for our sins on the cross. To pursue humility is to pursue Christ-likeness. And many, many of the divisions in a church come from competition of the will and competition of resources. How many get resolved when we consider the needs of others and desires before our own needs? Pride only wants to make its point. Humility works for understanding. 
Let me say that again. Pride wants to make its point. I I want you to hear me say this. I want you to hear me say this. Humility seeks understanding. And true humility guts self-exalting pride or pity party pride. So first, virtue, humility. The second, gentleness or meekness. You think in the context of unity building, unity preserving, harshness repels, gentleness attracts. If harshness amplifies a conflict, gentleness quiets it. Humility and gentleness, they too are essential attributes of God in Christ. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, a great invitation. If you're new this morning to Trinity Church and you want to know what Jesus is like, he is inviting you to come to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's what harshness is. Harshness is using words or tone or actions, emotions, body language without concern for how it makes another person feel. Harshness gets someone to back down from their position and give you what you want. Some will use insults in harshness. Some will use sarcasm. Some will use exaggeration. Some will use angry emotions. Some will use a barrage of words that never stop so that nobody else can speak. Harshness grows out of pride's desire to get its way. Harshness is often a result of a vengeful or angry spirit. So as harshness stirs up, gentleness calms down. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A number of us have noticed an ongoing angry attitude in our culture. Linda was driving the other day. She had my granddaughter in the car, and she's parked at a stoplight, and she looks in her rearview mirror, and she sees, you know, three lanes of cars stopped, and all of a sudden, a bunch of guys jump out of cars. I think there's a total of eight in different cars getting out. Half of them don't have shirts on, half of them have t-shirts on, and they just start a brawl in the middle of the road. Yeah, welcome to Spokane. We're a high degree of safety here. It's like, what is wrong with everybody? So angry. Harshness often grows out of an angry attitude. But gentleness, growing out of humility, still considers the welfare of the one you're in conflict with. Still considers the welfare of other people. Gentleness is a willingness to waive your rights to certain behaviors or certain treatment. 
Let's say the person you're in conflict with judges your motives. The person you're in conflict belittles you. The person you're in conflict with, their, their emotions are high. You're slandered. Instead of saying, how dare you treat me like this? I deserve better, than, better treatment. Instead of demanding your rights, you forego your rights. And you say, I can see you're upset. Can you help me understand that? Can you help me understand? I hear, you're frustrated. I, I see that. Am I getting this right? Am I understanding this right? See, a gentle answer dials back the emotion to seek for a solution to the source of the problem. Have you ever considered? Here's something we don't think of about gentleness. It's not ignoring someone else's sin. Gentleness is not necessarily ignoring someone else's sin. It is dealing with it in the most loving and reasonable way in order to persuade them away from it. In fact, in Galatians chapter 6, talking about restoring and helping people who are caught in sin, listen to how the apostle uses this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That is to be reasonable, persuasive, loving, not harsh, considering when confronting and helping a person that's being restored that they have feelings and maybe suffering as well. And the spirit of gentleness. So first, humility. Second, gentleness. Third, patience. All of these bloom the gentleness and patience bloom off the flower of humility. If impatience hurries to annoyance and anger with someone, patience is slow to be annoyed or angry. I like what one person said about this. Patience makes allowance for other shortcomings and endures wrong rather than flying into rage or desiring vengeance, end quote. It is another of God's attributes. Patience is. I heard it this way this weekend. God never shows us all our sin all at once. He shows us little by little so we can grow little by little. I think of how patient God has been as you read the pages of Scripture with the patriarchs, with Israel, when Moses was told you need to keep on with this people even though they're stiff-necked and stubborn. Moses said, I want you to show me your glory. And God hides him in a cleft of the rock and he peers before him and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Slow to anger. That's the Old Testament way of describing patience. Slow to anger. We've been working through Resolving Conflict by Lupriolo, both as a couple and as counselors. Lupriolo has three helpful categories of conflict. Write these down. Write these down. Some conflict results from differentness. We have different backgrounds, different expectations, different educational levels, different desires, different perspectives. Some conflict comes from differentness. 
Linda and I are very different. I grew up in the very small town of Cheney, and she grew up in the metropolis of Yakima. It's huge. I, I got my driver's license in Ritzville because my dad didn't want me to have to take it twice. I'm going to take him to a little tiny town. We had different cultural backgrounds. Some things come from differentness. We may not like the same food. We may have different ideas for what's best for friends or our families. Some conflicts come from differentness. Add sin to differentness, now we have a real, real problem. Second, though, Priola would say, some conflicts result from sinfulness. Someone sins and the other is hurt or offended. Those are relatively easy. That was a sin, that, that was wrong, you hurt me, or the person sins is that was wrong, I hurt you. Seek to confess it and make it right. The third kind of conflict comes over righteousness. Righteousness. Different people have different perspectives on what they think the Bible says about a matter. And the conflict is essentially over what's the right thing to believe and the right thing to do before God. We need to be very patient with each other in all matters, but we need to be especially patient over matters of differentness, and we need to be especially patient over matters of righteousness. As we grow to try to think about what the right thing to do is, we need to be patient. In fact, the book of Ephesians talks about the role of, of pastor and elder, equipper, to train the saints to the work of ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith. One of the things that stood out the first time I studied and preached to this is we don't all start with a unity of faith. We all start in different places. It is through the steady study of God's word that we come to greater and greater unity. For a long time, Linda and I thought we, we both liked hikes. We, we loved to hike around Spokane. On, in our 20th anniversary, somebody gave us a little boost to help us get to Kauai. We went to Kauai for our 20th anniversary. And um, we, I looked at all the hikes. I got one of those guides. I was super excited. Linda was super excited. And uh, there are various levels of hikes, so we never took any of the ultra hikes. We were looking at the medium to low-level hikes. We wanted to see this particular hike that has a cliff-line view of the Nepali coast. It looks like one of the most beautiful places on earth. And so we drove all the way around the island, and we went way up high. We parked in the lot. We started on the trail, and pretty soon we're in the middle of the jungle. It had just rained the night before, and jungle's growing. I don't know how long the, the path is. It's a couple of miles to the view spot, and it's steep, and it's slippery, wet mud. And pretty soon, Linda's not enjoying herself all that much. We can't see anything but the forest or the, the jungle, and we're slipping and getting our hands dirty, and it's, it's starting to get really gross. So I said, honey, let me just run up, uh, up ahead. I'll check to see if there's a viewpoint not very far, and we'll try to power through that. I run up ahead. It's a long ways away. I come back, and there she is, alone in the forest, 
crying. And I said, I am so sorry. We can go back and we can shop at all those little shops until I cry. (laughs) We learned we were very different and the kinds of adventure we thought was fun. We need to be patient with each other's differentness. And even if the conflict is over sin, we should be asking important questions. Is this a one-time kind of sin that, that... Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. We don't confront every sin. We need to be patient with some. We don't all change all at once anyway. So as one person's growing in our community, we are patient. So often we need to be patient with others as they are growing. Humility then gentleness and patience. Number four, loving forbearance. The fourth prerequisite. Humility, gentleness, patience. Fourth, loving forbearance. This, This is with weaknesses, faults, and the slow work of shedding sin. That's forbearance. He says bearing with one another in love. You could translate bearing with as forbearing. It's putting up with or patiently enduring unpleasant characteristics of another person. And the motive of love is crucial here. Bearing with one another in love, in the sphere of love. Love is, is I learned to understand through the book of Ephesians, is thinking and doing what is best for another, even if it's very costly personally. It's doing what's best. Someone. So this motivation is crucial. So as we grow in greater understanding of the fullness of love of God for us, we want to grow in love also. The motive of love here turns the virtue outward for another's benefit. So forbearance takes love and it's constantly thinking of how to benefit or help the other. It's not inwardly always dealing with self-protection. Again, it's a very characteristic. It's an attribute of God. Romans 2 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is forbearing. Where patience is focused on the moment, forbearance is focused on the long term. It is willing to shoulder the load of someone else's weaknesses idiosyncrasies and failures how do we fail to forbear shutting down in conflict withdrawing in difficulty giving the silent treatment giving up quickly or even prematurely drawing a line in the sand you know what if you act like this line in the sand I'm out we're not going to be in a relationship anymore I'm going to keep my distance from you Prematurely drawing a line in the sand shows this sign of not being willing to bear. Sometimes even acquiescing to someone's sinful actions might not be forbearing because it doesn't want to do the hard work of 
bringing up an issue to deal with it. Now, I referred to Galatians 6 before. It goes further. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love, and bearing with one another in love is taking on the load of another's weaknesses, besetting sins or failures, willing to carry the load with them as they seek to overcome, as they seek to grow. It is a commitment to help them grow, knowing at times it takes effort and there is failure, and sometimes that failure in growing actually still hurts you. I do want to make one caveat, a sidebar. There are some sins that are literally harmful. We, we call it abuse in our culture, violence, threat of violence, abject neglect. These things li- lead to physical harm, emotional scarring. And God gives law enforcement to deal with those kinds of things. And I would always say, if, if you are experiencing violence from another person at home, you can, we have law enforcement for that. We're not talking about that. Adultery. Adultery is breaking a covenant of faithfulness. You're not forbearing with an adulterer. You know, honey, if you only have a few more affairs, it'll be okay. I understand, you know, you can't help but having some affairs. Just have less and less of them. Like, there's some sins that are like, we're done. Done or I'm done. So, I want to be careful with using forbearing. What I'm really talking about is, in the host of day-by-day life, there are besetting sins in the others in the community or in the marriage. And these things are prompted by fears and anxieties, greed or idols of the heart. And we need to be forbearing as other people put to death their, their sinful desires. Forbearance. And finally, we come to diligence. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and finally, diligence. It's not really a character quality so much as a commitment. As a commitment. Conflict resolvers, peacemakers, unity preservers must be diligent. Notice what he comes to. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This eager to maintain, sometimes translated uh, like the New American Standards, make every effort to preserve. Like there is something precious that God has done at Trinity Church. Something precious has been done here. From eternity past, God has taken a set of people, he's elected them, and in time, he has brought the gospel, and it has gone forth in power, and he has called to life a people that were dead, and he has put them together. They are now not a bunch of different random people. They are one body, even called a temple. There is a unity made by God, we need to be eager to preserve it. 
God has made an eternal or heavenly unity, we need to be eager to preserve the earthly unity. And there's this sense of zeal or urgency. The Spirit of God has produced this unity, and it's the responsibility of the people of God to demonstrate it. Certainly, as you grow as a church, you're going to grow in your doctrine, and there are going to be decisions that you have to make. What do we think this doctrine means? How do we operate in it? How do we apply it? So if it's an issue over doctrine, then you're going to want to be one who initiates the study, initiates the conversations to understand the other side and work through the scripture together. Hey, I noticed you said this or I heard this. Can you help me understand what you're talking about? If it's a conflict over a decision you have to make, you're going to have to make all kinds of decisions as a new church. There are all kinds of things that you're perpetually coming in contact with. How are we going to make those decisions together? You want to take the time and initiate to hear conversation, to get perspective. If it's a conflict over sin, it's being the first to confess your sin. If something is really bothering you, it's initiating and staying in a conversation about it. It's persistent prayer over the various issues that you will have as a church. And unity, when we finally get to it, what what are we looking at? Eager to maintain the unity of of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is a oneness. This word is a word for oneness. It is having aligned hearts. Remember the first time preaching through this, very insightful comment. We're not looking for uniformity. That, that could not be what we're looking for, everybody being the same and doing the same. Because in just a few passages, he's going to talk about, a few verses, he's going to talk about all the different gifts that God's given to the church. We are naturally different. We are to play like a symphony. Not like opposing hockey teams. We're looking for Oneness of heart, aligned hearts. The goal in the ongoing relationships of Trinity Church should be agreement in the Lord. Agreement in the Lord. Now notice what happens in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. Christ has made peace by his death on the cross. He's brought hostile forces, Jew, Gentile, and all the other kinds of things that are hostile into oneness, and he's made peace by the blood of the cross. So what is this peace he's talking about? He's talking about the spiritual reality coming together in joyful enjoyment of others. Enjoying the people that you're with. Not only having shared hearts, but it's a lack of, lack of uh, hostility, a lack of enmity. Instead, there's affection and care and joy and anticipation in the gathering together. This bond of peace. Our aim in a walk worthy of our calling is to flesh out externally for the world to see what is true spiritually. Since the Spirit's produced it, now we demonstrate it out. 
One of the reasons I'm a pastor and I'm a churchman is because of what Ephesians 3.10 says. Ephesians 3.10 says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This manifold wisdom of God, how people in this community love and care and enjoy each other. They don't bicker and backbite. They don't slander they, look, they resolve their conflicts. One of the reasons why I know that a church that grows in conflict resolution and peacemaking and unity is attractive because we have a months-long waiting list for people to get in biblical counseling at Faith Bible Church. And we don't advertise. People hear that there's life change. People hear that peace is possible. And they line up. So we want the peace that Christ has purchased to be demonstrated. All right, let's let's look at three ways you could think about implementing it here. First of all, conflict is unfortunate, but a virtual inevitability of life. You're going to have different people with different views, and there will be feelings that go with that, and feelings match with differentness. Conflict. Evaluate the conflict. Remember the three areas, differentness, sinfulness, or righteousness. Is this person just different than me? Different idiosyncrasy, has idiosyncrasies. Is this a sin? Is this a sin that I can't overlook? Or is this about righteousness? What's our conflict about? Oh, it's, it's about the right way to understand God's word. Or it's about the, the, right, it's the right way to parent. Or the right way to shepherd a child. Or the right way... Okay, what is this conflict about? I think one of the second most helpful tools is something we like to call a log list. A log list. This really comes from Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5, where Jesus uses this analogy that's, that's, that's almost comedic. Jesus is almost using humor. Why do you look at the speck in somebody else's eye, a little spot of dust, when you have a log or a beam in your own eye? Like, how, how can you say, you know, imagine this beam, brother, let me get that speck out of your eye when you jam him with your log? Like that, it's just a very funny statement. And he says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly. One of the things that we like to encourage people to use is a log list. Here's what you do. You write down all the sins that you're committing that contribute to the conflict in this situation. Write down yours. Confess them to God. Confess them to the other person. You first take the log out of your own eye. And number three, get to the heart. Get to the heart don't just solve the problem. I think it's so important to, to get under the surface. What am I thinking and feeling? What's important to me? What am I wanting? What am I believing? Most of our conflicts result from putting hope in the wrong thing and not Christ. We've been married long enough that usually the issue is not the issue. Usually we could solve the issue. This is her view. This is my view. It's all the idols, all the the false hopes, all the things that we wanted underneath it that are clashing. Can we get those out on the table and talk about them? We need to get to the heart. 
And most of our conflict results from putting our hope in the wrong thing, not in Christ. Remember what Jesus did through his spirit for the Ephesians. He shuttered all their false hopes and he opened the shades to let in the bright hope of his glorious salvation. You should ask yourself, what did Christ do for this? How is he a better savior to believe in? Many of you are nursing wounds of unmet expectations. More money, better behaved kids, a spouse, a spouse that would really change. I mean, I would love a spouse that would really change, some of you are thinking. If I had those things, everything would be fine. How many people show up in the counseling room together and one of them is like, fix, fix her, or he's like, she's like, fix him. That one wants the other to change, they don't want to change themselves. And then I'll be fine. They're all faulty saviors. They're all false hopes. I mean, I think through these very virtues, Jesus showed his humility in coming to be our Savior. Jesus showed great gentleness and meekness. Think of all the interactions with the disciples. How, what a bad rap Peter gets for being the knucklehead disciple. He's just the first one to speak. Everybody was thinking of it. Stop thinking about Peter for a second. Think about Jesus with Peter, his disciples. How Jesus sat with and taught and retaught and retaught and retaught and retaught and retaught and retaught the disciples over and over. The night he's going to be betrayed by Judas, they're still fighting over who's going to be top dog. And he's about to die. And he doesn't get up with a stick and start wrapping him on the head. He reminds them and teaches them again and again and again. Is there anyone more patient and forbearing than Jesus? Has there been anyone more diligent than Jesus? The Apostle Paul summarizes it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. A new telescope went online, and they found out the universe is huge. Great, glad you spent a lot of money for that. However, they're finding that it's huger than they thought. Like every time they look, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And God did that with one word. He spoke it into existence. 14 billion, he just whoosh. Something 14 billion light years across. With functionally infinite stars, galaxies, planets, functionally infinite. Like you, you can never get there. You can never imagine it. You can never put your mind around it. And the God who made all of that did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself in perspective smaller than the ants that might crawl on the carpet compared to this room significantly smaller he 
humbled himself, took on the form of man. He became man. He became a slave, a servant, and was murdered on a cross. What else do you need? What else could you possibly need? When we get to the source of the conflict and say, what am I looking for here that I don't have more of already in Christ? That's why Jesus makes the invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. You're serving something. Stop serving that. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. You're asking the question, how can I do what he wants? What character of Christ should I put on? John MacArthur writes this, No program or method, no matter how carefully planned or executed, can open the door to the gospel in the way individual believers can do when they are genuinely humble, meek, patient, and forbearing in love, and demonstrate peaceful unity in the Holy Spirit. End quote. Amen, John. It's the middle of the summer. You've all been to an ice cream shop, except for those dairy intolerant people who still don't like sherbet. I understand you. Ice cream needs no defense and neither does a gospel that is believed on and lived out by a church with genuine unity. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would do such a work at Trinity Church that you would help them put on all humility and gentleness, patience, and forbearance, that this would be a diligent people to overlook when needed, to get important issues on the table when needed, to have the wisdom to discern between both, but that a genuine affection would continue to flourish and thrive and grow here. And by it, Bring a testimony to your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.